Welcome to the Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The Historical Perspectives series is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than 100 interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, artists, and more who helped found and shape the marine mammal field from its beginning and as it continues. I am your host, John Anderson, and today we revisit a conversation that I had with Dr. Joe Girasi in 2010. Dr. Girasi was a scientist, a professor, a veterinarian, and one of the leading experts in marine mammal medicine. In addition to this, he was a strong proponent of educating the public about sea life and the challenges affecting it. He served at the National Aquarium in Baltimore. He advised the International Whaling Commission. He was curator of the New York and Montreal Aquariums and president of the Mystic Aquarium in Mystic, Connecticut. Dr. Jirasi was also one of the founding editors for the Journal of Marine Mammal Science. Later, he was appointed to the National Academy of Sciences Committee to study the effects on marine mammals of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. In four decades of fieldwork, Dr. Jirasi led research teams to the Arctic and to the tropics to study the health of marine mammals and their environment. He wrote more than 100 journal articles, authored seven books, and 21 book chapters. Dr. Jirasi died in 2015, but his scientific and academic legacy continues. He once called the National Aquarium, where he served as his deputy director, the biggest classroom in which I've ever taught. He is best remembered for his extraordinary compassion for animals and the ecosystem in which they lived, and also those who worked with him. One colleague said, Joe was a warm, down-to-earth scientist, and he had a smile that inspired you. I was fortunate enough to have had the opportunity to sit and converse with Joe for a couple of hours. Let's listen to what he had to say about his career path. In veterinary school, toward the end of my veterinary training, um, I felt the need, um, which I didn't know I could fulfill, to get to go right back to the ocean where I grew up. And there was no possibility of doing that. At least I didn't think there was. So I went, right, I, I stayed a year at the University of Pennsylvania uh, and um, interned, essentially, and uh, was fortunate enough to get a position the following year with uh, the New York uh, Zoological Society, which was the preeminent conservation zoological sort of society in the country. and. Um, I worked with uh, Ross Negrelli, who was the, uh, really the preeminent fish pathologist um, in the country. And uh, I went very sheepishly for a job with Dr. Negrelli. And I stood before his desk, and he was very serious, looking up at me. He didn't even stand, didn't even shake my hand, which, I was, which made me even more nervous. And, um, he asked me, what do you know? And I said, about marine things, nothing. He said, you're hired. <laughs> and so I spent three years, uh, four years with them, uh, and, uh, th and working on fish, 
health and fish diseases and uh, and they had at the time the largest collection of marine mammals in the country. I knew nothing about them. I worked with Carlton Ray and uh, Paul Montreuil who, who uh, had worked with marine mammals in Canada and so they knew what they knew about marine mammals uh, and the three of us would, would sort of join forces and try to do what we could to understand um, how to keep these little guys alive. And we had diseases, of course, and we had uh, illnesses that couldn't, couldn't, didn't even know how to take a blood sample in those days. So it was hard to make really any headway. Um, but we worked on it and tried. And, and um, uh, a few years of that, and I went to Montreal uh, where Paul was starting an aquarium. Uh, and I, he asked me to come along with him and uh, be the curator and medical guy for the aquarium. And I said, my gosh, what an opportunity. So off we went and um, spent three years there building an aquarium and building water systems and understanding. And in the meantime, I was very, I was now knee deep in marine mammals because I was working with the Arctic Biological Station, which was right next door to the aquarium. And they were the most active marine mammal unit on the continent at the time. And I got to know these guys and I went everywhere with them. I went to the East Coast, I went to the Arctic, I went to Hudson's Bay where we caught whales to tag them. And on every expedition that I joined up with, uh, I managed to do my own work, which was try to understand health. I took blood samples. Uh, excuse me, my dog is going to... Okay, Tracker, get out. John, excuse me. Tracker, John, could you just let her, you just let her in that room and shut the door. I, I can't. Get up, go, go back, go back, Tracker. You're just, I love you, but I love you, but you're just a pain in the butt. Go, 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 go. Go with John. Go ahead. Go, get up. Go, John. go with John. Just call her. Just say come. Just say come. Tell her to stay. Stay, Tracker. Stay. That's good. That's good. Sorry about that. That's okay. Oh. I was trying to figure out how to just make that shot wider. Segway. Well, you could have done that if you wanted that, but that would just drive you. Not should be there all day. <clears throat> uh, so, so in Montreal, then um, I had numerous opportunities to work with wild marine mammals. Uh, we had some dolphins, and we kept some seals. Um, but they were small numbers, and uh, I was fortunate enough to work on huge populations and therefore get so much experience in such a short time. Um, and three years of doing that, and that's what I wanted to do. I was not that interested any longer in working in an aquarium per se. That um, was fun, but I really wanted to chase knowledge of marine mammals. So I was close enough to uh, uh, McGill University, uh, where they had a phenomenal program in oceanography, and I decided that's what I wanted to do. So I joined up, I signed up for a PhD in, uh, in, in marine sciences, and uh, did my work on seals, 
nutrition in seals uh, in wild populations and captive populations. Uh, and meanwhile, learned as much as I possibly could about the ocean and everything in it, and what, what makes the water salty and what makes the fish swim. And, um, and really try to understand the environment that these animals were living in so I can better understand their needs when they're in captivity and what goes wrong when they're in the wild and uh, the environment changes or the food source goes away or there's a bad storm. Um, and so I stayed there in Montreal, uh, got my, my, my doctorate, um, and uh, soon thereafter I wanted to be just free to do my work. So I left the aquarium and went to the Ontario Veterinary College as a professor, assistant professor, associate professor. And I went there for one reason. I said, you could come here and for the first year, you don't have to teach a course, just do your work. Well, that's hard to beat. So I, uh, actually there was a zoology department at the time. And uh, so I went to there, I went to the zoology department. In a few years, I transferred to the veterinary faculty and remained there for many years. And while I was there, I was so fortunate. I worked on marine mammal populations from the eastern point of the maritime provinces in Newfoundland to Vancouver. I worked through the high Arctic. Uh, I had programs going on in Hawaii and um, uh, the Amazon down in Brazil, the Caribbean. Um, I was heading in every direction trying to understand it. I worked with every, I worked with manatees and, and seals and dolphins and whales and um, and then I, I, I maintained my interest in captive animals because I felt that I was now, maybe now in a position to help uh, improve husbandry conditions for them. So I spent a lot of time uh, in research on the needs of captive animals, uh, nutrition, uh, the saline environment, what kind of you know, what kind of water really should they be in? Um, what kind of diseases do they get? What happens when an animal is stressed? You can only learn that in a small, with a small group of animals. You can't study the mechanisms of stress and disease in the wild. You don't have access, the kind of access you need for blood sampling and for observation. So captivity provided that wonderful opportunity to learn about individual animals and to take that information and spread it out to the populations. The wild uh, was the only opportunity I had to understand how that translates to the, to, the, to the natural environment. So I could see from all of my work on strandings, studying stranded animals, and just studying animals at sea, working with, with zoologists, population biologists, um, seeing what kind of conditions animals acquired in the wild. Then I could take that into a captive setting and study it. And now I could translate from one to the other back here. Whatever I learned out there I could use in captivity, what I learned in captivity I could use in the wild. So I, I sort of, and I won't even say shuttled, um, I think I sort of mentally melded everything together uh, to try to better understand the needs of individual animals through, through how they, are, they, they interact in the population. And spent uh, and and um, I think we, we did a lot of work on on uh, 
I think, improving the captive environment for animals. One topic of discussion was on animals regarded as sentinel species. Way back when I was just trying to understand seals in the ice, um, I took blood samples from uh, seals in the Arctic. I took some blood samples from some seals in Basel Bay, Coronation Gulf, way up north. And it was part of a long, big study, and it doesn't matter where, or this particular group of seals, there weren't that many of them. But my biologist colleague, friend, Tom Smith, whose study it was to determine what was going on, why we didn't have that many seals, and the general condition of these seals didn't look as they really should. And we came back, we started talking about this, and we called it then a bad ice year. A bad ice year, which meant the ice formed maybe too late and didn't break up in time. And because it didn't break up in time, the animals who arrived there to eat the new production of plankton, the fish that eat the plankton and the seals that eat the fish, there was no plankton there because the ice was still hanging around too long. So the seals arrived and oh, nothing to eat. So they were in pretty poor condition. And so you say, well, how do we know what's going to happen? And so I took a bunch of blood samples and put them aside, analyzed and put them aside. And it wasn't until we started talking about this bad ice condition, bad ice condition, that we looked at the samples and I said, Tom, I found something. I found something absolutely exciting. I may have had tears in my eyes. And that is that when I had done studies in captive animals uh, that were not doing well, they had come in in bad shape or that they had been brought in because they had been stranded or whatever, um, there was one hallmark finding biochemically in the blood that was very rare and showed me that this animal is at the peak of stress. And I'd gone back to those animals at Basil Bay and here it was peak of stress. Those markers were right there. And it just, it opened up a whole new theater for me. Um, and because now it wasn't just captive animal that I was looking at and say, well, I can see it's stressed and this is the stress and this is the marker for stress. This was an animal in the wild that had the same hallmark. And this animal I know didn't make it. When we left Basel Bay, that group of animals never made it. Um, because they never would have made it in captivity. With help, they wouldn't have made it. Um, so, um, what, so we learned then that there's something going on in that ocean that is completely reflected to us. And if you had given me those blood samples without showing me the seal, now you could do that. They say, this guy isn't going to make it, that guy's a matter what he looks like. doesn't matter. He's not going to make it. There's something wrong up there. And then, of course, continuing to work with these populations, uh, then uh, one gets involved in, in big problems in the ocean, which I've been involved with, with mass strandings or mass disease die-offs and uh, planktonic blooms. So I've studied, you know, we, we really discovered the first viral disease in the marine mammal population, which was influenza with seals. We still, and when we, we put all of the information together, why do seals die of influenza? If the influenza virus is out there, why this year and not 10 years ago and 30 and 50 years ago? Even though you go by the back in the records, you don't see these kinds of events. Why not? And what we believed then is, since that was 79, 
is that, um, like in, as in people, um, unusual weather patterns tend, to, be, tend to, to influence the conduct of those viruses. And we believe that that, that it was a particularly warm winter. Warm winter, why? Well, warm winter maybe because of the winters that we're seeing and maybe it was started to signal, or maybe it was just an unusually warm winter. But the warm winter had those seals hauling out, whereas normally they would be in the water. But it was nice and warm. They go out and sun themselves on the rookeries in Cape Cod, and they were nested like logs, like, like, like firewood. They just, just all, all like cords of firewood. There they were all over the beach, making it very easy for a virus to be transmitted from one seal to another, to another, to another. So the particularly unusual winter, in the, normally in the wintertime, they would congregate on Cape Cod, but they'd be all over the ocean. Uh, but now, the water was nice and warm, the, the, the air was nice and warm. So up they came and let's all go on the beach and unusual numbers. And uh, that, we believe, was the way that disease was spread. So there again, environment. Uh, we worked on, found humpback whales dead in 1989. Uh, a dozen humpback whales died in Cape Cod, most unusual event. And we traced that to mackerel that they had eaten. Uh, that had um, accumulated saxitoxin, which is uh, paralytic shellfish poisoning that affects people if they eat clams in the wrong time of the year, can kill them too, has and probably will continue to do so forever. Uh, but very unusually, the whales were eating um, mackerel. They don't normally eat mackerel, they eat sandlands. But now there were no sandlands. Sandlands had there was an oscillation in the, sort of the, the availability of sandlands, and that year there were no sandlands. So the whales they were hanging out there waiting for their food, and uh, normally they don't touch mackerel, but here's a great meal, folks, let's go after it. And those mackerel were and continue to be laced with saxitoxin. So they ate the saxitoxin and died. Environmental. And now all of the dinoflagellate blooms that we're hearing about, these toxic algal blooms, they, they are spreading both geographically um, and, uh, and, and um, uh, in, in, their, in, in their extent. There are massive blooms now where there were small blooms, and they're much more sustained in some areas than they used to be, and they're occurring in places where they never occurred before, and that, I believe, is environmental, um, and it may be nutrient enrichment from runoff in, from, uh, from watersheds, um, that uh, have a lot of just nutrients that'll sustain these populations of dinoflagellates, and once they bloom, really tough for some animals to live in their midst and they die. So we've had sea otters die, we've had sea lions die, we've had all kinds of animals now that we recognize the problem, and one has to say that that's an environmental influence. Joe had a very thoughtful take on what the public should know about marine mammals. What they're missing is how, how fascinating they are and how beautifully adapted they are, how the gift that evolution <laughs> has provided them to be able to live in that ocean magically. Instead, I think what the public has is this notion of what a marine mammal is and how they save people from drowning and how they 
do all of these things that I guess we as a society wish we could do for ourselves. And maybe we're just simply just transferring our desires of how we should live hospitably, without war, and sort of helping one another out. And we, 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 I think we just project that out there, and that's how dolphins have become. Unfortunately, they're aided and abetted by a lot of stuff out there, <laughs> even literature. And not to say that that's a bad thing, um, but through it all, I think they've they lose the real essence of what is fascinating about these animals. And it's not all of that business. And even if it's true, and they, let's assume it is true, there's something much more, much deeper than that, I think. Um, and, and the lesson from all that is, to my mind, is that they've, they've learned, quotes, in evolution, it's taken them 30 million years to learn this, to perfect and hone this. It's taking us a few decades to smash it all up. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's the, that, I think that's the, that's the, that's the take-home for me. In concluding our conversation, Joe offered these bits of advice to prospective students. One is, don't study marine mammals as your major, as your principal discipline, as your fundamental discipline. Study a subject or discipline that has real, long, hard roots. So if you're interested in studying marine mammal like cetacean clicks or echolocation, I'd become, I'd probably want to be, say, be a physicist, be an acoustician, learn everything you can about the physics of sound, then apply it to marine mammals. So, and if you wanted to be a marine mammal um, uh, uh, behaviorist, study behavior in every species you can find, apply it to marine mammals. And the same is true with physiology or biochemistry or certainly medicine. If you want to study medicine, don't study marine mammal medicine, please. There isn't enough out there to learn anything. Go where the, where the body of information lies. Study a heart out and then apply it to marine mammals. So that's one thing. And I think that that's, I would strongly recommend that to any student. And when, they, when a student asks me that, that very question, what are you interested in? When you go lie down under a tree somewhere, and when you wake up, what are your first thoughts? What do you really love? What's your passion? Are you good with your hands? Are you good with your eyes? Are you good with your head? Where is it? Because that's what you want to study. Then go play with the marine mammals and apply it there. Um, and the other is, I think, um, to, uh, to identify a hero, you know, a word we don't use much. Uh, identify a hero, someone whom you admire. Why, why do you admire that person, for starters? But, but someone you admire, figure out why you admire that person and try to follow those, try to follow that thread. You know, if it's a person whom you admire because he's quietly knowledgeable, don't be a big mouth. You know, if you, if you, you admire someone because they're, they're um, a generalist, don't get bogged down in life's details because you'll get lost. Um, and I think that's just, I mean, that's, that's not, it's nothing to do with marine mammals. I guess 
what to do with growing up. You know, like you asked, who are your, who do you, who are your inspirations? And I, I almost prefer to call them my heroes. You know, uh, um, because you know, it, it, when I'll tell you a very, very quick story. I was sitting in porch, not like this, not unlike this, um, when I got a call from Ken Norris. And Ken uh, used to chide me all the time for picking up stranded animals, dead animals. Call it. So he would call. He would. He would sign his letters to me. In your never in your relentless quest of carrion, Ken. You know, and always something to do with this disgusting mess that I'd find on the beach. You know, why would you possibly do this? And Cheville would do the same. Well, they get together at a meeting, and I was talking about stranded animals, and I was, you know, they, I was the ham in the sandwich. They just crowded me in, all in joke and jest, but, um, but anyway, that was the kind of relationship we had. So I always felt like the ham in the sandwich with those two guys, and they were really up there. I was. You know, not at the level. They were up there. So I got the call from Ken. And he said, Joe, I want you to be on the board. It was in the 80s, 83. I want you to be on the board uh, of the, the, the editorial board for the journal Marine Mammal, for, for, for the Marine Mammal Society's journal. I said, the Marine Mammal Society doesn't have a journal. He said, yes, but we want you to be on the board because uh, we, we uh, are planning on having a journal. And he said something like, you're a... Uh, uh, something like you're a cranky writer or something like that, you know, because you know, you're a tough, tough editor or something. I said, well, who's on the board? Well, Carlton Ray is on the board and, and, and a bunch of other people, friends, and Bernie LaBeouf was on the board and Ron Schuston was on the board. I said, well, okay, I'll be on the board with them, fine. What do I have to do? Nothing. You don't have to do anything, just be on the board. Okay, fine. Ham sandwich. Five minutes later, I get a call from Bill Cheville. Bill, uh, Joe, thank you so much for agreeing to be the editor of the journal, of the Society's Journal. I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? He said, well, Ken just called me, and he said he knew, and he told me, he says, he knew that you can't turn me down, because I could never turn Bill Cheville down for anything. And here I was, the editor of a journal. All in six minutes, the ham and the sandwich, and they worked it beautifully. The coordinated, the choreography, it snapped together, and I was the, I was it. <laughs> and two years later, we had a journal, and it's still alive and well, but that was the work. I can tell you that was the work of Bill Cheville working in concert with, with, with Ken Norris. Both of them, my absolute heroes. In my 20s, could I ever... Could I ever achieve a status where I can even talk to these people? Well, that was the ham in this sandwich, so I guess I did. <laughs> very cool. Sorry, I had to say that. <laughs> oh, very cool. That's all we have time for today, and I thank you for listening. If you would like to watch Dr. Jirasi's complete interview or other scientist HP interviews, then please visit aquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top.